So we're going to start a brand new series of messages today, and they actually come, the words or the title of this series of messages are the first four words in the Bible. In the first verse of Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And in the next number of weeks, we're going to be looking in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis together. And some of the messages that are coming up are life as God intended it, the big apple, uh, looks like rain, what do you say to a drunken ex-sailor? I thought that was funny too. And finally, it's all Greek to me. And so this morning, we're going to begin by asking a question. Does he or doesn't he? Does he or doesn't he? Before we consider that from God's word, let's uh, pray together for a moment. Father, how grateful we are that you're here by your spirit. How grateful we are that you've revealed yourself uh, uh, so specifically through your word. We're thankful for the gift of your word. And we would invite you to speak into our life now in very personal and intimate ways. Thank you for the things we're going to learn about you today and about your nature and who you are and how you want to work in our life. And so we invite you to do this, and so we offer ourselves to that end now. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Does he or doesn't he exist? This is a question we all ask ourselves. At some point in life, everyone asks themselves this question. It says in the book of Romans, just by looking at all that there is, people are prodded to ask this question. Does God exist? How do we know there's a God? Now certainly, I'm just going to say this right up front, certainly it requires some faith to believe that there's a God. But I would suggest that no matter what you believe in life, whether you believe there's a God or there isn't a God, or something else, any one of those worldviews or any worldview that you might take, way of looking at life, requires faith. And so the question is, is yeah, there, it requires some faith to believe in a God and in the biblical God, but is it reasonable to believe that God exists? And if he does exist, what does that mean to me personally? What kind of implications come as a result of that? So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the first chapter, and in particular, at this moment, the first four words. In the beginning, God. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you today. I'm going to invite you to go home and read that chapter if you haven't read it recently, but I think it would be worth reading again. Read through the whole chapter, and what you're going to find in this chapter is that this chapter has seven days. And it's the recounting of how God made it all happen. And it gives us some very definitive insights into how we can know there's a God and what he's like. And the first four words in Genesis chapter 1, 1 are incredibly powerful words. They tell us so much. And in some ways, I, I personally believe these first four words are among the strongest suggestion there is that there is a God. But let me begin by the first, just looking at the first three words. 
in the beginning. In the beginning is, in, in the biblical Hebrew, it, it literally means here a starting point. Just like we've come through January 1st and we consider that a starting or a launch part, point for this new year, to use this free phrasing in the Hebrew means the creation or the launch point of everything. And it marks the starting point of a period of time. The period of time that started off with the creation then of the heavens and the earth. So how does this relate to the existence of God? What the writer to Genesis is saying is, saying is in the beginning, God already was. In the beginning, God. As it began, God was already there. In other words, he is saying to us and he's addressing the question that again, every human being has at one point or another, what caused all this? When I look around at all that I see and I see in the stars at night and the sun during the day and I experience the world, what caused all this? And it's the question of origin. Why and how am I here? And some people came up with a, a fancy way of articulating those first four words and they call it the cosmological argument or the ca first cause argument. And really what it's asking is who, and it's incredibly profound when you start to think about it, who or what is the first cause of all that there is? And I'm going to invite you to think with me today. There has to be an eternal something. An eternal something. Something or someone that is self-existent, that is uncreated. Because if there was ever a time when there was absolutely nothing, there would always be nothing. Because absolutely nothing doesn't create something. There has to be something eternal, something uncreated, something self-existent. And this is what the writer to Genesis is suggesting to us. Who, and he's answering the question, who or what is that eternal something? Now, a lot has been written about this, and particularly in the last couple of thousand of years. And I've read a number of these people down through the centuries that have spoken about this first idea of why we might think there's a God, but generally there's the consensus with most of them is the answer to that question is, is one of two things. People will say this eternal something or someone is either a self-existent God or a self-existent physical universe. Can the physical universe really find its origin in itself. Think about that. They would most likely suggest to you that energy is eternal. In other words, an element of the physical universe caused itself. I would suggest, when I think about that, that it takes a lot of faith to believe that. I would suggest that it takes more faith to believe that than to believe there's a self-existent God. The writer of Genesis, and, and he says there is a God who is self-existent and who exists outside of the realm of our full comprehension and understanding. 
And the writer of Genesis, literally, when you read those first four words and you start to think and pray over those words, they stop you in your tracks with this penetrating idea. Where does it all come from? And the answer is, in the beginning, God. Quite frankly, we could just go home right now. Because that, that when you really start to think about that, it starts to short-circuit the brain. When you try to think about the idea of eternity, there's something quite profound about what God inspired the writer to write. But let's continue on. Let's read verses 1 through 3 now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so he begins the process of creation on the first day. And if you were to read through this whole chapter, which again I encourage you to do this, you're going to find that the creating on on day one ends at verse 5, and day 2 at verse 8, and day 3 at verse 13, and day 4 at verse 19, and day 5 at verse 23, and day 6 at verse 31, and day 7 wraps up in the opening verses of chapter 2. And as you're reading through that, you begin to notice something gets repeated over and over again. And it gets repeated in verse 4 and in verse 10 and in verse 12 and in verse 18 and verse 21 and verse 25 and verse 31. And what gets repeated is, just picture this with me, it's like God takes a step back from all the creating he's been doing on this particular or given day. He takes a step back and he looks at the process as it's flowing. And there's this sequence to the process. And it's it's like he takes a look at what he's, do- he's been doing and he critiques it. And in each case, in each one of those verses, he says, this is good. This is good. And what he's saying by this is that things are on schedule. Things are going according to my plan. Things are working out the way I've intended them to do. And it's coming together exactly as I have prescribed it to come together. This And he says it over and over again. This is good. Now, ask yourself the question. Why would the self-existent one, who is lacking nothing, if he's truly self-existent and uncreated, he lacks nothing, why would the self-existent one be looking all this at the stuff that he's creating? Why would it look so good to him? Because if you look in verse 2, it says, as he was about to begin or whatever, in the beginning processes, it says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And he is, as he sees this rolling out, as he's created, he begins to see the incredible creativity that he's putting into this dark, formless place. There's an order to it. There's incredible beauty. There's harmony. It works together. And why wouldn't he step back and say, this is designed the way 
I planned it to come together. And this is really good. And this is the second big idea about why we believe there's a God. And again, some people, I don't know who came up with a fancy term for it. It's called the teleological argument or the argument from design. You know, the other day, I had someone go and dig out uh, these papers for me. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bin just in a room right behind us here of blueprints for this facility. And uh, this is just a few of them and just one element. And they're incredibly detailed if you start looking at all these blueprints. And it's in complex facility. And, you know, we are blessed with a beautiful facility. But it's complicated to build a building like this. It takes an incredible amount of work. And if you, even though this is a beautiful building, it's a pretty simple building. And if you look at it in contrast to some of the great, huge structures of this world, even though this is a great building, it's still pretty simple. But there still was a tremendous amount of planning and work that went into building this building. What do you think it took to design the human body? That thumb you got. Those eyes that you see with. What kind of intelligence and creativity and the ability to get it all to work together, what kind of ability did it take for that to take place? To design the atmosphere that allows us to breathe. The tides as they come in and out on schedule. The seasons, the relative angle of the earth to the sun, and if that's out at all, we'd either freeze to death or boil to death. To have the planets orbit just so. There would be many people that would contend that it's a logical impossibility to assume that this is a cosmic accident. An oops. There's such a sequence and order. And this is why it says in Romans 1, when you, when you look at the creation, you can't help but know deep down inside, there is something or someone out there that created all this. Some thought went into this. It's an illness, it's an illness you can't get away from the fact that some thought went into this. The teleological argument is the suggestion that we see, what we see laid out here in Genesis chapter 1 is not an accident. It suggests there is a designer in the universe. And when we read through how the sequence flows and how it works together, it tells us something about him. As we see the creation, as we smell it, as we touch it, as we we interact with it, we can tell there's someone out there that's very intelligent, that's powerful beyond imagination, that is thoughtful, is creative, that appreciates beauty, someone that has provided for us in the creation for our every need. Someone that cares for us and loves us deeply, who is clearly beyond our capacity to fully comprehend. 
Now, the double-edged sword here is we don't like to admit that. We don't like to admit that there's someone out there greater than us. And we're just sharp enough to know that if there is someone out there greater than us, it's entirely possible that we will be accountable to that one out there. And that makes us hesitant. We don't like that idea. Because we're proud. Think with me. If the universe created itself, it went from the incredibly simple to really complex. But if God did it, he did it from a position of unexplainable complexity to that which, relatively speaking, is really quite simple. We know from the second law of thermodynamics that the universe is in a gradual state of entropy, slowly but surely dis 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 I can't speak, sorry. Um, it's uh, getting smaller through the energy and the complexity. You know what word. I can't say the word. Whatever it is. And I'm wrecked my joke that I'm about to tell now. But the reality is, here's the joke. Laugh with me, just humor me, okay? I can tell that it's, get, it's winding down by, and the way I know that is by going and looking at myself in the mirror every morning, and that's all the evidence I need. <laughs> I would suggest that the idea of the universe creating itself in this simplest of forms of just raw energy somehow generating everything that there is, the simple to the complex, I would suggest that requires a tremendous amount of faith. Tremendous amount of faith. And the other side of the equation, it requires faith too, but I don't know if it's so much that the complex, the unexplainably complex, designed and created and enabled the relatively simple. So he provides this environment and then he pauses on the sixth day to create something unique. And we read about this in verses 26 and 27. It says, then God said, and this, this, this verse here is the first time in the Bible that the idea, this theological idea of God being a trinity, because it goes from then God in the singular, and it switches to the plural. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. This is something we call the Imago Dei. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. These verses tell us that there is something unique about humanity. For many people, they look at human beings and they describe them as simply evolved animals. Genesis chapter 1 says, no, there's something significantly different about 
men and women. It's not that God has the form of a man or a woman, but that each of us in some fashion through this Imago Dei is a, a reflection of God. And we can see some of this uh, evidenced in our ability to reason, in our ability to decide between right and wrong, to forgive, to appreciate beauty, that we have intellect, that we have emotions, that we have will, that we can at least try and grapple with the idea of eternity and, lack, and, and, and act in light of it. Well, my understanding is that as anthropologists have studied all the human cultures in the world, they've never found a human society that doesn't have a sense of right and wrong. It varies sometimes from society deciding what's right here might be wrong there, stuff like that. But there's always a sense of right and wrong. The Imago Dei, where did we get our sense of right and wrong from? The very strong hint, again here in Genesis chapter 1, is that this is from God and that he is the great moral law giver. And it's because of him that we have a sense of grappling with right and wrong. Ravi Zacharias has said, if you suggest there is no God, how do you make any moral pronouncements of any kind? If there is no God, isn't anything permissible? Came across these lyrics from a group called King Crimson, this rock group. Listen to this. They're quite profound what they write in their song. Knowledge is a deadly friend when no one sets the rules. The faith of all man, the fate rather, of all mankind I see in the hands of fools. Confusion will be my epitaph as I crawl a cracked and broken path. If we make it, we can all sit back and laugh. But I fear tomorrow I will be crying. See, these guys get it, right? No moral law, no meaning. Why is there a moral reality that we grapple with? Where do we get that from? There's other reasons we know or believe there's a God. Let me mention them very quickly. One of them is just the fact that we have the Word of God. This standalone book of 66 books that is written, inspired by God, uh, through different people who had different occupations over long periods of time, and it works together without contradicting itself. It has all kinds of prophecies, hundreds of prophecies, sometimes hundreds of years in advance, predicting exact events. It has a story that changes lives. This is a profound, unique book, standalone book. Within the book, it says that Jesus Christ went to the cross and rose from the grave. A standalone, unique event. Something no one has ever done before or since. In fact, it says in this book that if he didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is kind of a cruel joke. And you should move on with your life in essence. Finally, it would be my story of what God has done in my life. The story of countless, probably billions of people over history that are recorded in Scripture and all throughout history 
of how God has intervened and changed their life. That's no small thing. In fact, I, I would suggest it's basically to impo impossible to argue with someone's personal story, and it's a powerful indication that there's a God. I find it very interesting that in the opening chapter of Scripture, not only does God tell us how it all came to be and how it all happened, which is one of the themes we could have really explored this morning, but it also shows us how we can know that he's really there. That in fact, you don't have to put your brain on hold to believe there's a God. Quite the contrary. It does require faith. But doesn't every worldview require some level of faith? And that it's an entirely reasonable to believe there's a God who is both eternal, but powerful and intelligent and creative and imparted to us the difference from right and wrong. You know, when I read Genesis chapter 1, something just screams to me that we've had as a bit of a theme through this service. And the idea that just screams to me is there is hope. There is hope that every human being in this room and every human being in this world longs for hope. That we can't really live without hope. And this passage says to us in very powerful ways, someone greater than us has provided hope. Someone greater than us is deeply interested in me. Someone greater than us has provided for each human being all that they need. That, that says to me there's great hope. That someone had a plan back then, a very detailed plan, a very sequenced plan, and that it's I would suggest entirely reasonable to assume from that, that that he now has a plan for me right now. He had a plan then. I'm guessing he has a plan now. That gives me hope. And you may be here and, and maybe, uh, maybe you have never made a decision about God. Maybe you're, you know, if you were being honest, you'd say, well, Scott, I'm not really sure. Or maybe you might say to me, you know, Scott, yeah, I, I think he exists, but if I was really honest with you, it really hasn't changed my life at all. Of course, the argument would have to be made is, do you really believe it then, if it hasn't changed you? Let me just say that all the logic in the world will not convince you to commit your life to him. But could it be just might it be that like it says in verse 2, that the Spirit of God is hovering over you right now, offering hope, drawing you to Christ. I'm going to invite you, if you're not even sure if there's a God, have the courage not to resist that. Have the courage... To just say, God, I'm not even sure if you're there, but would you help me? Would you help me know if you're really there? Would you help me understand who you are? Would you help me understand who Jesus is and what he did for me on the cross? See, I totally believe that if you approach him sincerely like that, he will reveal himself to you.
There's many promises in Scripture of that. And maybe he'll say some other things to you or bring some more people across your path or maybe you'll open the Bible, maybe even for the first time or open a book. And he will just turn on the light bulb. It might take some time, I don't know. But he might do it very quickly. Just turn on the light bulb and you will understand and you will want to have a relationship with him. Know this, this whole book uh, says that God deeply wants to have a relationship with you. It's one of the meta stories, one of the big ideas. And this is why Jesus came. Because he wants a relationship with you. So I invite you, if you're here and you're asking those kind of questions, don't just leave. There'll be someone up front you can come and talk to. You could come and talk to me. Talk to the people you came with if we brought you to church. What might that look like? If you're here today and you're a believer and you know Jesus as your Savior and you've crossed the line of faith and so you've understood what I mean by that is you've understood there's this chasm between you and holy God. You've done sinful things like the Bible says we all have that cannot be dealt with by yourself. They're only dealt with based on what Jesus did for you. And you've asked him to forgive you and to be your savior and to be the Lord of your life. And you've given your life to him. I just want to remind you, there's incredible hope. Hope in Christ hoping the provision that, that God has given through his creation and through Christ. And that you do not need to be embarrassed to be a Christian. You don't need to shrink from boldly talking about your faith. That we have absolutely zero reason to cower when someone challenges the faith. We stand on a strong foundation. Yeah, you have to have faith, but they all do. It's a rational foundation. It's a compelling foundation foundation does he or doesn't he I think he does I do sitting out front here is Andrew if you we're going to be done here in just a couple minutes but when we're done if you'd like to come and pray with someone for any reason Andrew's one of the leaders one of the elders in our church you'd be honored to do that or you could pray by yourself or uh, with the people that you came with, feel free to do that. You know, uh, I'm just going to segue here a little bit. This church is more than 75 years old here in the community of Lethbridge. And so it goes without saying that there have been many people before us who have sacrificed, who have served, who have pointed people to Jesus and... Uh, you know, you know, we're all about know, love, and serve here. People that know, love, and serve God. That's part of our purpose statement. And there's been many before us that have bought into those kind of ideas deeply and given of themselves. And we're just privileged to have uh, some guests with us here today. Um, and I'm going to invite Cliff and Bev Bergman to come up for a moment. I've asked Cliff to close our service today. Cliff... And Bev, 